um, I was reading a commentary on on this 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 chapter um, this morning. So those those especially those opening verses of chapter 12 that describe Abraham's calling, um, how God called Abraham. And the suggestion was made that this is the single most important passage in the entire Bible. The single most important passage in the Bible is what is how the, the commentator explained this. Now, now, I personally think he's exaggerating, um, but there is at least almost unanimity amongst uh, Christian commentators that um, these verses are the most important passage in Genesis. Um, there's an agreement that uh, Abraham is the, the most important figure in, in Genesis, the most important of all human characters anyhow in, in the book of, of, of Genesis. Um, uh, and so that seems to be the, the general view that Christians take about Abraham's story. I wonder if that's how you would have thought about it when you think of what's most important in Genesis. Is, is Abraham's story the most important thing? Well, well, listen to, to why that might be the case, why Abraham's calling and just Abraham's narrative in general, the, 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 the section of Genesis spanning about chapter 11 through about chapter 22 or chapter 25, depending on how you're drawing it, why, why those... Why those that narrative is is really the heart of of Genesis and the most uh, marks a watershed in 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 the book of Genesis and and it's 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 it's, it's um, you you imagine you're, you're Moses and you're writing the book of Genesis why are you writing this you're writing these to 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 Israelites that perhaps have just escaped Egypt and you're, you're writing to them about the about the ways of God, and you begin to tell them about the, the book of Genesis. What is the thing that you think Moses is trying to achieve as he's speaking to these, um, to these Israelites? Well, one of the things he's wanting to convince them about, right, before, they, um, before they, they're going to enter into the promised land and, and overtake the, their enemies and, and, become, and, and, and form a nation, one of the things Moses is trying to convince them of is that they're the very people of God. He's trying to convince them that they have been called by God. He's trying to show them that um, there's a reason for them to believe that they're God's royal priesthood, they're God's holy nation, that there is this purpose, there's this plan that God has for them. And he's trying to show them just how expansive this plan is. This plan is, is, is more expansive than you'll ever believe. And if that's the very reason, if, if Moses is trying to show them that actually they, they were always God's, it was always God's plan to redeem them. They were always God's redeemed people. Uh, it was always God's plan. Then you see how nothing is more vital in demonstrating that than the book of, than, than Abraham's story itself. It's very true that, um, that in the Genesis story, so we, 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 I preached a sermon on the fall last last week. And it's very true that after chapter 3, we, 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 we do see, we see um, examples of God's grace and mercy. There are indications that um, divine mercy will, will triumph over the consequences of the fall. There's indications as, as early as as early as, as chapter 3 when God is, is sending Adam and Eve out of the garden and Adam calls his wife Eve, because she'd be the mother of all living, and 
God closed them. There's indications later on when after we were told about human, the, the, the degradation of the human race in Cain, in, in Cain and his lineage, we, we, we find that, that that chapter 4 closes by telling us, but, but there was a Seth um, who, and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We, we get indications of that, of course, supreme, significantly in a Noah who remains faithful even when God is wiping out the whole world. But the clearer picture of God's plan to redeem, so remember that I spoke about how the book of Genesis is this story, it begins for us the entire story of the Bible, the entire structure of the Bible of creation, fall, and redemption. And the clearest picture of redemption actually begins to emerge in the story of Abraham. Prior to this, for example, prior to chapter 12 and just earlier on in chapter 11, we've seen that even after the flood, mankind continues to be rebellious against God in the attempts to build the Tower of Babel. And so it's not like the flood itself had automatically secured redemption or, uh, or, or the, the redeemed people of God. It's, it's in the story of Abraham, it's in God speaking again to Abraham that we begin to see that God, we, we begin to see God's plan for redemption come into clear focus. This is why Abraham's story is so crucial. Because Abraham's story is a story of how God promises redemption. It's a story of how God promises not simply that Israel will exist, but that they will exist as a nation, and that they will, they will, he, he will give them land, and that, they will, that through them, the earth will be blessed. And so it's a story of how God begins to say that he actually has plans to reverse the curse, right? When, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the, the one thing they, that happened in God's judgment was that there was a curse. Abraham's story is where God begins to, to, to tell us that he actually plans to reverse that by blessing. When Adam and, and Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the land, right? They were exiled to, uh, and, and, and they had to leave the land of Eden. The Abraham story is where God begins to tell us that he plans to redeem that by giving them a land. And, and, and so because this is actually the formal story of redemption, uh, it becomes actually quite paradigmatic for the rest of the Bible itself, not just for Israel. So later on, we're going to see that even, we see that even the promises of Israel becoming a, a nation and having kings. So a King David only exists because an Abraham exists. But later on, we're going to see that even more than that, as Paul tells us, and as the New Testament is, is wanting to always say, right here is when God puts in, 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 in step, and puts in motion the plan to send the Redeemer into the world. So the story of Abraham is a story of how God begins uh, and how God's plan to send our Savior, the Savior into the world, begins to take speed. This is the beginning of how God is going to reverse the curse of the fall, how God is going to save men from the bondage that they came into because of sin. This is that story. And so Abraham's story is crucial, not just in Genesis, but even in the Bible as a whole. And so for that reason, actually, Abraham's life has often been seen as, as I said earlier, just being the pattern for the life of all those who are faithful. Um, but what we're going to see in a moment is that 
the things that take place in Abraham's fellowship with God um, become the things that are repeated in the lives of all those who after him have genuine fellowship with God. Right, so when we study Abraham's calling, for example, and we see his demonstration of genuine faith, we start to see that actually, ever since Abraham, every, genu- every demonstration of genuine faith has basically repeated the same elements, right? The same things we pick up from Abraham's faith and Abraham's calling are the same thing that we see every single time someone trust this God for redemption. Every time someone becomes redeemed, every time someone depends on God for redemption, they basically play out crucial elements of the same story that we see, or the same thing that played out in God's first encounter with Abraham. And the reason for that is simple. Our God never changes. God never changes. He's the same. And in God, the, the, the plan for redemption has always been the same. The way to to, to walk with God has always been the same. It's always been about faith. And so if Abraham was able to walk with God, essentially the, the, essentially, the way he was able to walk with God is going to be the same for everyone who's ever walked with God. It's always going to be about, for example, faith. And that's why late, thousands, thousands of years later, uh, 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 or centuries later at least, Paul can take up the Abraham story and say, this is a story about faith. It's a story about the faithful. Because God never changes, and God's plan never changes. And so in studying Abraham, we're studying the heart of the Christian faith. If we look closely enough, if we read carefully enough, we're really reading about how God comes to people, walks with them, invites them into a saving relationship with them. And so it's important for us to pay careful attention to Abraham's story. Now, as far as the, this, these verses are concerned, this is the first time then that God calls Abraham. And the essence of this passage on the calling of Abraham is really God's promising, to, God's promising something to Abraham, God making promises to Abraham, and Abraham's responding in faith. That's the essence of Abraham's calling. God, God makes promises to this man, and this man responds by believing him. I believe in God, and he begins to live the life of faith in God, right? And so this story, Abraham's story, is a story that says God speaks, God promises, and then says people should believe him and live as though they believe what God has said. It's quite simple. And so to explore Abraham's calling this morning, let me look, let me look um, with you at three headings, three headings that basically capture um, how I've just summarized Abraham's call, the story of Abraham's calling. Firstly, we're going to see about we're going to see about, we're going to look at the God who promises. Right, God promises. Uh, that's the first. That's the, ascent, the, the first significant thing to learn about Abraham's calling is that there's a God who makes promises. And so, the same way in the story of Abraham's redemption, the first and most important thing is that God has promised. It's the same way even today. In anyone's story of redemption, so if you're a Christian who has seen your own story of redemption being written, you, you find that you are you're, you're very, the same thing has happened to you as happened to Abraham. You believe what God has said, God's promise. So we're going to look at the God who promises, and then we're going to look at the promise itself. Right? 
the, the, the promise that Abraham believes. He believes it because God has said it, but there's a promise. And then we're going to look at Abraham's response to God's promise. As I say, those three things make up, um, make up every single story of redemption you'll ever come across. God making a promise. Men and women hearing that promise and how they respond to that promise. And of course, this morning we want to say that as, as God has made those promises in redemption, uh, the, 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 the best way, the only way to respond is to believe. And let me just say this. I'll say this at this point now. That we always, we, we, we speak a lot about faith in this world today. But I think the Bible requires me to say that that picture I've just painted of what faith, of how genuine faith comes about. God speaking, you believing his promises, you responding to those promises, and that being what faith is, is the only genuine type of faith that exists. Every other mention of faith is false, is counterfeit. Right, So people can say all day, I have faith. People will say, I'm not, I, don't, I, I don't go by religion, but I have faith. Um, I am a person of faith. Well, the Bible basically suggests that unless your faith is the faith of Abraham, it's a false faith. It's not true. So it's not so much about whether you say you have faith, but what faith you have. Whose faith is it patterned after? And maybe one way to know that your faith is genuine is to ask if it resembles, if it looks like the faith of Abraham. Does it reflect Abraham's faith? The Bible is very clear. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And if your faith, if your faith is not in line with Abrahamic faith, as is, said, as, as is taught of in the Bible, then it's not genuine faith. But those three things first, then. The, the God who promises, right? This is... This is how Genesis 12 really starts. This is, it says, God spoke to Abraham. God said to Abraham. It starts with God speaking to Abraham. And this is the beginning of Abraham's calling. It's the fact that the God who made the heaven and the earth and who made it by speaking it into existence. Remember, God spoke. He said, let there be light and there was light. He spoke the whole of creation into being. And that same God has now spoken to Abraham. Redemption begins just like creation begins, by God speaking. Redemption begins for Abraham as the creation began, by the true and the living God speaking. Because both redemption and creation are the coming into existence of life. And only God can bring life into existence. For a man to be redeemed is to say that he's coming out of spiritual death. The only way to come out of the spiritual death in which we all are is by God speaking. And so God spoke to Abraham. God called out to Abraham and told him what to do. Abraham, leave your family and go to this land that I'm going to show you. And from this passage, you see, Israel would forever learn that the word of God is their only hope of redemption. God must speak. That's why even in Egypt, before God delivers Israel from the hands of Pharaoh, eventually there is a the parting of the Red Sea. Israel walks safely past through the dry land. Their enemies are consumed in the waters. But before that, what you have is a sequence, because you know the, the narrative of, the, of, the, of Israel's coming out of Egypt spans uh, 10 or so chapters, right? Because before 
Israel's enemies are consumed in the flood, the God who redeemed them, he speaks. He appoints a spokesperson in Moses and Aaron, and he just speaks. He speaks because Israel must learn that they do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God, a speaking God. Redemption comes when God speaks. That's why Christians are so anxious to get the word out, to get the message out. That's why even in a pandemic, we look for ways to make sure that, the, that sermons can be preached. Because we know there's redemption when God speaks. There's salvation if God is speaking. That's why the Bible's, uh, the, 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 the arch enemy of the Christian faith are false teachers. Because we know that when God speaks, there is salvation. And so if you're twisting God's truth, you're, 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 you're withholding the only hope of salvation from men and women. God speaking is how we are redeemed. And that's why eventually in the New Testament, the, 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 the New Testament authors will begin to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the Savior, who is our only hope as, of redemption. They speak about him as the word, the very word of God. That's not to say, of course, that Jesus Christ is, ju is, is, just, is the Bible, as it were, and they're just synonymous because, of course, uh, Jesus Christ is a person. He's not a book, as it were. What that, what that is to say, though, is that everything in the Bible, then, is speaking about him, is testifying to him. And that what that does tell us is that the same way only God's word brings redemption is the same way only Jesus Christ can bring redemption. He's the very word of God. Jesus is the true and the living word. And so we see that from the outset, that... This calling of Abraham begins with God speaking. God speaking his word. And God speaking his word is our only hope of redemption. That's why it's so crucial for us, if we claim to have faith, to be listening to God's word. To listen to God's word in sermons. We, we, we listen to God's word as we read our Bibles on a daily basis. We, read, we listen to God's word as we meditate. God's word gives life. That's why so many, even Christians, even people who claim to have faith, sometimes are living in deathliness, they're experiencing death in so many areas of their lives. You know why? Because God's word hasn't been spoken to it. You haven't spoken God's word to an area of your life. Brothers and sisters, there's no areas of our lives where we require anything more or less than God's word. That area hasn't been found. That where something is more crucial than the word of God. Take God's word with you. It's life-given. And it's the only place where there can be life. The moment you begin to shut out God's word, you shut out life. God is speaking. And so we know life is coming. God is speaking and we know redemption is coming. And the crucial thing here is to say, God's word can bring life where there is death. Can these dry bones live? If God speaks, yes. So God is speaking. This is the, this is, this is the God who promises. Everything about the, everything that's going to happen from here is really about the fact that this God is the one doing it. Promises will be made, but you and I make promises. The significance here is about this God who is making it, this God who is speaking. You can believe promises. We believe people's promises. That doesn't necessarily change or save us, but when we believe the God, when we believe the promises of the God of the Bible, so many things we can say about how the story of Genesis reveals to us the character of God. But I'll, I'll really emphasize just two points. So this is a God who speaks. 
But he speaks sovereignly and with power. There is sovereignty about God's word. This is a sovereign God. There's no, of course, in the context of Genesis, we already know the God that is speaking in chapter 12 of Genesis is the God who spoke the world into being in chapter 1 and 2. And I remember preaching on the, on the first chapter earlier on, in a few weeks earlier, a few weeks before, and saying that this was the creator king and that he was a sovereign king, a sovereign God. He's the same God speaking. So we already know that the word must be sovereign and the word must be powerful. But look at the under, other indications we get that the God spe- speaking in this, in this passage is the true and the living God. Well, you have the fact that it's a command. It's, the, the, it's how God speaks to him. Get out of your country. And look at the nature of the command. Leave your family. Leave everything you love. Only one with sovereign power and authority could speak this way. But that's the God who speaks. Oh, brothers and sisters, until, until men and women know that the God who speaks is a sovereign God, the God who has all power in his hand, the God who has the, the authority to speak with authority, then they won't believe. It's no wonder it's no wonder Satan is, is, is at pains to try and distort the view of the biblical God. Make him a God who is subject to emotions. Make him a God who can be unsure and uncertain. Make him a, make him a God who can, who, can, who, who, who can need to make a plan B. Make him a God who can forget. Make him a God who, 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 who can have rivals and who can have partners. Because that way people don't treat God's word as finally authoritative. We live in a world that doesn't even respect the word of its president or prime minister. Like how many of you have already said in the past few weeks, and the Lord forgive you, all kinds of things about Boris and his, uh, and, and, and our dear prime minister's um, briefing to the nation. How many of you have doubted it and you've even known more science than him and all kinds of stuff? How many of you have done that? That's the kind of world we live in. And so if, 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 if only we can bring God down to our level and make him a man just like ours and place him at the head of some kind of democratic union, then we can despise his word. But, if, but we need to remind people that God of the Bible is sovereign. He speaks with authority. That's why I can say to you that God asks you to repent from this. I can say to you, God asks you to forsake this. doesn't matter what you think. You say, this is my identity. This is, this is, what, this is all I know. And, and, but Abraham thought that. God said to Abraham, leave your family, leave your kids. Abraham could have said, this is all I know. This is, this is what I'm made from. But this is the voice of the sovereign God. He's sovereign. He made us, not we ourselves. We have to listen to him. We, 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 what's God asking of me? What's God saying to me? And Abraham probably from, a, from he, Abraham is coming out of Ur and the implications, Joshua tells us this, that it, it, was, it, it, was, it was a pagan city, a pagan society that Abraham was coming from. And so what happens here in Genesis, perhaps, is Abraham hears the voice of the true God. He had been worshipping false gods who had no authority over his life. He had been worshipping false gods who he, he had to feed. False gods who, who bargained with him. But now here is the true God who does whatever he pleases. Brothers and sisters, that's the God of the Bible. My friend, that's the God of the Bible. He does as he pleases. He's a sovereign God. He made you and he calls you. He commands you. Another, uh, um, another indication we get of his sovereignty is the fact that it's Abraham. Why is, why is it Abraham that is called like this? So, so we're going to read in a moment that, God, that, that there's a promise of great blessings to this man. And from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why is it Abraham? By every indication, he was an idolater living in a pagan society. 
right? Why, why is it him? We don't, we don't hear particularly that Abraham was busy praying, seeking after God, and that's why God called him. No, of his own sovereign, free grace, he just called him. We, 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 don't, we don't know why, but he chose Abraham. He chose him. Sometimes we, there's, a, there's a hymn that said, we, sing, we sing that says, it's not that I chose you. That could not be. This heart would still refuse you if you had not chosen me. Sovereign grace. The sovereign call. It's not because of Abraham's faithfulness that he was called. Because God is sovereign. And Jeff Thomas in the in in sermon on this passage um, says that it was God who took the initiative in the call of Abraham. He came seeking and finding Abraham. He says, from that moment on, we find that this is the pattern of God's saving enterprise throughout the Bible. And it's true. Moses wasn't going around seeking a burning bush. It was God that lit the bush. This is how God begins to work. Sovereignly over his people. Paul wasn't going around or Saul wasn't going around seeking blinding lights. It was Jesus Christ who suddenly picked this rebel and, 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 and showed him his grace and showed him favor. This God is sovereign because he also chooses who he decides to demonstrate his favor to. So later on, God is going to tell Israel, it was not, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy in chapter 7, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God reminds Israel later on, it's a sovereign choice. And you remember what I said, for those of us who claim to be people of faith, we, we see the same story. My calling was a sovereign calling. It wasn't anything I did to earn this. It wasn't anything I did to be in this position. God called me. Or maybe you say, ah, but actually, I, I think it's because I was born into a Christian family. But who decided that you'd be born into a Christian family? Who placed you in that Christian family? And how did your family become a Christian family? And, and isn't it true that some of you are in Christian families with people who are not Christians? It's God's sovereign grace that he calls and chooses his people. This God is sovereign. And also, you look, look at what he promises. He's going to promise, he promises Abraham, if you leave your family, I'm going to give you essentially the whole earth. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to give you so much blessing that anyone who curses you is cursed, and only those who bless you will be blessed. I'm going to give you so much blessing that people will use your name as a way to kind of invite blessing. Only a God who's sovereign and powerful can promise these things. And last thing I'll say about this God is he's, 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 a, he's a God of love. This is the God who promises. He's a God who loves. And, I, and again, we, we probably have to deduce, deduce this by implication, but as I just read in, in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells us that's why he chose Israel. That's why he called Abraham. It's because he's a God who decides to love. How do we know this? Because one of the things God is doing is he's reversing the fall. By calling Abraham out, he's saying, Abraham, come out of, of, of this, 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 uh, this, this, this death land. Come out of your paganism. Come out of, your, of, of this life you're living towards death and come and see true life. He loved. He loved us. 
Well, Christians even, we, we go even further than that. We say we don't even know why he loved us. We know he called us because of love, but why should he love us? That's how incredible his love is. The Bible says it's a love for the sinner. It's one thing to love someone who is righteous, but God is loving sinners. And so that's the indication we get, his desire to reverse the curse. Think again of the extent of the promises. One thing about love is love is generous. When you see true love, love is generous. Love opens its door. Love, love opens his hands. Love wants to give abundantly so. If you're a mean person, by mean, I mean you're, you're miserly, you're meager, you're, you're well, you call it, no, not even frugal now, but you're, you're stingy. You know, the, my problem for you there is not simply that you won't get back in future or, you know, that's true, is that you're deficient in love. You're deficient in love, and it's very problematic to be deficient in love. Let me say this to Christians again. If you have known the love of Jesus Christ, you have to be amongst the most generous people in the world. It just has to be. Never forget that. Never forget when God call, comes calling to you to say, sacrifice your time, sacrifice your home, sacrifice your wealth, sacrifice your clothes, sacrifice. Never forget this. Your, the, the stinginess with which you hold back to these things is a, is a mark of not knowing the love of God. If you've known the love of God, and you have known the love of God, what I'm saying, you must live in that reality. I've been loved endlessly, boundlessly, limitlessly. So I want to give limitlessly. God give us grace for that. But this is the love of God. Look at what he's given, he's given Abraham. He called Abraham out. Yes, come out. It's, a, it's costly, you think. But Abraham, I'm calling you to blessings unended. Blessings immeasurable. I'm going to make a nation out of you. A great nation out of you. It's interesting because earlier on in chapter 11, we see men who try to make a nation out of themselves. They try to be great for themselves. And God mocks them. But God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you great. The blessings God is pouring out on him. He's a loving God. Christians can tell you. He just blesses us. Keeps on blessing us. Keeps on blessing us in our sin. Blessing people. Blessing the sinners. Blessing the world. This is the God of the Bible. It's the God of love that calls Abraham. Abraham has to know it. When this God calls him out and makes promises of love, he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Guess what Abraham needs to be able to make a nation? He needs children. And early on in chapter 11, we read that Sarah is barren. This God is concerned for my condition, Abraham must think. He loves. It's the loving God that's calling out to me. Even his concern for the world, the Bible says, I'm not just going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you so the nations can be blessed. He's so loving. He, can't, he, he has to love. As I said, love is abundant. He doesn't just love this one sinner. He wants to love the world. He wants to love abundantly. That's the God who spoke to Abraham. You see the point I'm trying to make about, about genuine faith? Genuine faith is awoken because we see that this is the kind of God who speaks. We believe what we believe today. If you're a Christian, you believe what we believe today. And if I'm calling you to be a Christian, it's because I'm saying God has spoken. Not because I'm speaking. You probably don't know me personally, or you might know me personally. And if it was just me speaking, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't, you wouldn't build your house on this. You wouldn't give all your all for this, because you know me. You say, I know this guy, I know what he's like. He's not someone who I can put all my trust in. Definitely not. But this is the God who's speaking, and he's powerful, and he's able, and he's loving. That's the God who's speaking. 
I hope you can hear what I'm saying this morning. If you're a Christian, that's the God who's spoken to you. If you believe the Bible, if you believe the gospel, if you're believing it this morning, you know why? Because God spoke it. Not because one man spoke it. It's not true. It's not, some, it's not a white man's book or the, the red man's book or the green. It's, no, it's because God has spoken these words. It's because we believe that God moved through men to speak. And his voice is the voice of power in a life, in a world that is full of weakness. In a world that is, that is full of, that, that is dying away. This is a voice of power. His voice is a voice of love. In a, vo- in a world that is full of hatred. True love. Love that doesn't fail. This is the God that's spoken. That's why we believe his promise. I need to move. I'll say one more thing while I just head. I need to move on. You see, many other religions claim to have a word from God. And the, one of the evidence we have that they don't have this word is that they don't have this God. They don't have this God. This is not the God that's speaking. Not a God of power who's sovereign. Not a God who's full of love and life. And so many other things we could say about this God. A God who's holy. That's a true God. He's righteous. Right? And you see that even in this story. You see that even in this story, that he's right and that he's righteous. Because he's calling Abraham out of paganism. He's calling Abraham out. He says, Abraham, you have to leave that life. Because I'm, I'm, I'm righteous. If you're hearing me this morning and God's holiness frightens you, but could you at least agree with me that it's right? Many times we don't like people who do things that are right, but it doesn't mean that we don't realize that they are right. God is right for loving holiness. He's right for being holy. It's you, it's you and I that are wrong. So there's the greatness of the God who promises, and I have to labor that point because that's what matters the most, is that he has said it. Because if he hasn't said it, it doesn't matter, but he said it. The second thing is the greatness of the promise. The promise he's made. And this is why Abraham believes. You know, eventually, as you read on in chapter 12, Abraham leaves his home. He leaves his family. He's willing to do that, forsake everything he's known, and become, just become a sojourner. He's a sort of pilgrim, not knowing where he's going, heading towards these promises. Why does Abraham do that? Because of what God has promised him. Abraham, it's, it's going to be sacrificial. I need you to be obedient, Abraham. But you know what, Abraham? I'm going to make of you a great nation. Look at the greatness of these promises. And, and that statement alone encapsulates all the divine promises that God is going to subsequently make to Abraham. So essentially, we know that the, the promises that God makes to Abraham and, and, and thus to Israel are essentially encapsulated, at least in the Old Testament, by the idea of seed, by the idea of land, right? Seed, land, and by the idea of blessing, right? And when God says, I'm going to make, to, make of you a great nation, I'm going to make of you a great that encapsulates everything because to be a nation, you need to have people. You have to have seed in there. And to be a nation, you need to have land, Right, he encapsulates all the, all, all the blessing. But God, and the thing to say is verses 2 and 3 read as, as a concentrated statement of just blessing. The word, that, the word that is repeated the most in those verses is the word blessing. In fact, uh, in the Hebrew, Abraham's name shares roots with the Hebrew word for blessing. So that actually Abraham's name becomes a pun for blessing. 
His name doesn't actually mean blessing, but in his Hebrews in the Hebrew letter form, it looks like, and that's probably the intention of the author. It's upon a blessing. It's to say God is. This is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So let's not get it twisted. It's the greatness of the promise that fills Abraham with confidence. Abraham is no fool. He's not naive. That's not what faith is. Faith is not foolish. He knows the God who's speaking and he knows the promises that have been made to him. And he believes that and that's why he presses on. But there's great blessings made to this man. I want to say this. Abraham does not actually quite see the fulfillment of many of these blessings. He has one child eventually. We know this, Isaac, even though he's been barren for, his wife has been barren for years. So eventually, when she has the child, Abraham knows this is a work of God. But God promised him nations, descendants galore. He doesn't actually see that. God promises him land. He never sees that. The land that God promises him, Abraham gets to buy, you know, small bits of property in. But he never actually owns the land. And what's interesting for me is Abraham must know this is going to be the case. Even from the time God's calling him, 75 or so when God calls him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. He doesn't have a child at this point. Abraham must know that he's not going to see the physical fulfillment of these promises. And that, in fact, one of the blessings is, through you, many other nations will be blessed. Through your descendants will be blessed. So Abraham knows, at one point, he's going to be gone before he sees his blessings. And I'm saying to you that I think ultimately, What draws Abraham to these promises is the God of the promises himself. Abraham knows that by believing these promises, he's going to have the presence of this God himself. Okay, I will walk with you because you'll go with me. You promised that you're going to give me a nation. That means you're going to have to go with me to do that. You promised you're going to give me seed. That means you're going to have to go with me to do that. You say you will bless them that bless me and curse them. You're gonna, that means you're going to be with me. It's a promise of your presence. And I think Abraham knows that even greater than him seeing the physical fulfillment of these promises is knowing that this God is with him. That might be the, inter- the reason why the New Testament writers take up this story and use it in the way they do. You know, in the book of Ephesians, in a verse that is very similar, chapter 1, chapter 1, the verse is very similar, almost similar to this because of how concentrated the statement of blessing is. Paul tells us that in Christ Jesus, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Right? Paul is, is, Paul is in no doubt about it that when Christians believe the gospel, They are also promised blessing every bit as much as Abraham was promised. I'm saying to you that Christians believe Jesus Christ. We believe the word of God because it's a word of blessing. It's blessings and blessings and blessings. It's because God came to us when we were in a state of being cursed and said, I will bless you. It's because God came to us when we were in a state of death and said, I will bless you. Think of it. The thing that man fears the most is death. Because no matter what we achieve in this world, no matter how much we enjoy this world, we're all going to the grave. We're all heading towards death. So what's the point of living? But Jesus Christ then comes and says, I will give you eternal life. 
You see, he's appealing to our longing for blessing. I hope I don't sound like some prosperity gospel preacher here. You see, the, the, the thing about the prosperity gospel preachers is not that they shout that we have blessings. It's that they misconstrue what the blessings are. Is that they misunderstand and misapply what the blessings are. They deny us what the blessing is. The blessing, brothers and sisters, is the very presence of God with us. The blessing is the fact that even in our suffering, God is with us. So that Christians say, it is well. Otherwise known as, I am blessed. Come what may, because it all has meaning. It all has purpose. There's all a plan. And brothers and sisters, friends, I'm not joking. I could stay here for another 10 years on this pulpit and not be able to recount to you the extent of the blessings that God has promised his people. Shall we take one? Let's take the forgiveness of sins. And every single day, every single moment, we're forgiven. Yes, Christians have days when they feel like they're doing everything right. I woke up and I prayed. I woke up and I read. I settled the, 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 I settled a situation that could have gone really left. I settled it. I, I, I forgave that person. I've, I've, I've given money to charity. I've gone to Bible study. I've evangelized. Yes, we have those days. But that's not usually how our days go. Usually our days go that we can never go one, we, we can't go so long in righteousness until we have seen sin rear its ugly head. That's how our days go. We, usually our days go that say we, we wake up every morning and we're just so thankful that God forgives sin. And that God doesn't treat us like our sins deserve. Think of the blessing of sins forgiven. And means that I can stand before men because I stand before God. You see, I'm made right with God. So who, what does it matter what people think of me? The forgiveness of sin. And think of all the sins that have been forgiven in this world. Small and big sins. Open sins and secret sins forgiven. Some of you, you know that you sometimes you, you, you're, you're holding within painful Things that you have done, things that you can't even tell your Christian brother and sister, but you hold, you hold it and, and it would have crushed you. If not that you believe that God forgives and the blood of Jesus Christ washes, washes away your sin. Think of the justification. We have a doctrine that we call justification in the Christian faith. That means that no matter what we are, no matter what we do as Christians, we stand right with God. God looks at me as righteous, not because of anything I do. I don't have to earn God's righteousness. People don't understand the Christian faith. They think Christians are a bunch of people doing all these kind of things to try and be right with God. No, we, we do things because we have been made right with God through the sacrifice of another. The, the thing about the Christian life is it says the most vital relationship is my relationship with God. The biggest blessing I need is the blessing of God. Yes, there's many other things that we can call blessings. I don't deny that. And I, I want to live long, and I, I, I want to I be, be wealthy, and, and I want to have nice things in this life. There's, those are blessings, and people get them, some people don't get them, and that's all good. And of course you want to have children, and of course you want to get married, and you want to you, you, you be, be, be healthy, and these are blessings. I would never deny that. And you want to enjoy nice food, and you want to go on holiday, and these are blessings, but they pale in comparison to the blessing of having God, because you can have all those things and not have the living God. And I would rather have none of those things but have God for me. Because then my soul is safe. 
Because then when I stand before him on the day of judgment, he will usher me into an eternity that would make my sufferings in this world look like nothing. He's blessed us. He's blessed us. Honestly, when we, when we call people, come to Jesus Christ, we're saying, come and be blessed because you're living a cursed existence. You know, there's a verse here that says, I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse you. And when Paul is speaking about blessing and curses in the New Testament, he applies it to a different thing entirely. He applies it in a way that allows me to say, cursed is the man who does not know how he can be right with God. Cursed is the man who is impressive to everybody around him, but he's, in a, he's a rebel against God. That's true. That's what it means to be cursed. So my brother, my sister, my friend, man, woman, boy, girl, you can be sitting at the table of your blessing and still be cursed. You can be sitting at a table which you think is a table of your blessing because this is a table where you have, you, 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 you have financial prosperity and financial stability. This is a table where you have your own property. It's a table where you have your children. It's a table where you have a loving relationship. It's a table where you can go on holidays when you want. It's a table when you're healthy. It's a table where you have plans and ambitions. It's a table where you have reputation and fame and the acceptance and your relationship with God is non-existent and you are cursed. True blessing comes from being right with our God, being right with the God who made you. Because one day we must all leave and stand before him on the day of judgment. This is true. Some people get, many people get to live till they're old before they die. And they get to see the body frail and falling apart and they know death is Death is near. Many people do not. Many people do not. Many people are here today and gone tomorrow. Many people don't know. They, they're not given any notice. But it's God calling us to stand before him. What would be the point of all the fame? What would be the point of all the respect that we get in this world if we stand before the God of the universe and he sends us to hell? And so we ran to Jesus. Christians run to Jesus. And so in one sense, Abraham is told, leave your home, leave your family. And he ran out because this was a call to be blessed. This is the only place he could be blessed. So God made all these promises to Abraham. And let me close by showing you how he responds, or at least the last major heading I have is how he responded. Abraham heard this great promise. Look at Abraham's response to the promise. And the word that I must use to encapsulate it is faith. He believed God. He trusted God. He, he closed his eyes and ears to the opinion of people. He closed his eyes and ears to his own opinion. His own being controlled by his own emotions, being controlled by his own affections, being controlled by his own desires. And he opened his ear to God's word alone and gave himself absolutely to that. When we preached the message that the church preaches, and we say, God is a God who punishes sin, and this world is heading towards destruction. Come and be saved by Jesus Christ. Your response, when we say, come and receive the great blessings, eternal life, and a home in heaven, and the knowledge of God, and walking with him, and having him as your father, 
And having God's Holy Spirit directing you and living in you, and Jesus Christ as your Savior, when we preach that, your response is, is faith. The only response is faith. You see, it's the response to that message that is genuine faith. Any other thing is just faith that is empty. It's a faith that is hollow. This is, my friend, life-saving faith, resurrection-inducing faith, is faith that believes what the God of Jesus Christ has said. You, you believe him. You, 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 you give yourself totally to it. You devote yourself to it. God has spoken, and all, that's all that matters. This is what happens with Abraham. God spoke, and so he left. The rest of chapter, of chapter 12, at least about verse 9, is just a story of this man walking around, traversing, going to the place, going to the, to, to, to the, to the border of, of the promised land, not being able to get in there, not being, not being able to settle there, but just, God has said, so I have to go, I have to give myself totally to it. And, and Abraham becomes the, the perfect case study for genuine faith in the New Testament. And so when, 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 when James wants to teach his own class on faith, he, he calls up the study of, of Abraham. And when Paul wants to do it in, in, in the book of Romans or in Galatians, he says, let's, let's study Abraham. I want to teach you guys about faith. And when whoever wrote Hebrews wants to do it about faith, he, he can't leave Abraham out and say, let's study this person for what faith is. So let me say this about if Abraham is that father of faith, if Abraham is that model of faith, let me say this about the nature of genuine faith. Abraham shows us some things that are always going to, at least I'll say this, always going to accompany faith. I believed him. Oh, there's nothing, nothing is sweeter than saying, I know whom I have believed. I've believed him. I've trusted him. I've given everything to him. I don't believe anything else. It's him I believe. Let me say that for some of you this morning who are listening to me, just because you have to listen to sermons, but you're not a Christian. This is how you might know. And I'm not saying that to slander you. I'm saying that to wake you up from a sleep that might result in death, spiritual death, eternal death. What is the nature of true faith? It receives God's word, what God has said about himself. It obeys God's word. It's the significant thing. Everyone will tell you the major thing about what, what you see Abraham doing here is obedience. Obedience. And so Paul says in the book of Romans that he was sent to preach a gospel of, a, of the obedience of faith to the nations. The obedience of faith to the nations. There's, it's, 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 it's very true. There's no doubt about the fact that genuine faith obeys. It's obedient. That's why one of the first things that the, 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 the Christian does when he becomes a believer, he's, he gets baptized because he, he's obeying the command of the Savior. He's obeying him. Do you obey Jesus Christ? Do you obey the living God? Now, I don't think that, I'm, I don't think even your obedience is what saves you. It's God that saves you through his son, Jesus Christ. But as it has been wisely said, we are saved by faith alone, believing God alone. But a faith that saves is never alone. If you believe God, if you truly believe God, there'll be obedience. You obey what he says. You obey what he says. You can't be living as a fornicator and say that you have faith. You can't be living in open rebellion against your God and say that you have faith. You can't be living a life where you're denying the ways of God 
You can't be living a life where you're rejecting the way of God. You're living like a sinner. You're living like you, like you don't believe the Bible. You're living like you belong to those who don't believe the Bible. You can't live that way and still say you're a Christian. Faith issues out in obedience. There's obedience to what God has said. And it's the whole of your life is all about obeying God. Someone says, let's do business together. You begin to say, is there anywhere in this, by doing this business that I'll be disobeying God? Someone says, let's go, let's go somewhere together. You begin to say, is there anything in me going here that means I'll be disobeying God? Let's eat or drink this together. You say, if by eating or drinking this, will I be disobeying God? I can't do it. The whole of life, not even mother or father can make us disobey this God. I will never disobey my mom. I will never disobey you. I will always honor you and respect you. But I must always first, above all things, obey God. Not even the government. I'm a good citizen. I never rebel against the law. But I have to obey God. It's what faith does. It obeys God. It's sacrificial faith. Abraham has to forsake home. Has to forsake family. He gives everything away. Every single thing. Because he has to believe God. That's what faith does. Faith is never going to place God and something else on the same plane. Never. Say, God above everything else. It doesn't matter what it will cost me. Is it going to cost me my reputation? Is it going to cost me, for, for Abraham, my family, my home, the things, what, what I usually know? Is it going to cost me that? Is it going to cost, you, cost me the way I usually think? It forsakes everything. It's sacrificial. And the final thing I'll say about faith here is that it proclaims God. Over and over again, as we read in, the, in Genesis chapter 12, we see this um, in chapter 7. We see this, sorry, in verse 7. We see this in verse 8. The emphasis is made that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord or Abraham built an altar. What was this? This is worship. It was worship. My friend, faith worships him. Faith adores him. Faith proclaims him. He becomes everything. Faith loves him. You love him. So, I put it like this. I put it bluntly like this. Maybe for some of you, the, the, the fact that you, you just don't pray, you don't, you don't even know what praying is. You just don't like reading your Bible. You just don't enjoy the sermons. It's because you just thought you were a Christian. But there's no faith. <laughs> Mommy and daddy are forcing me to go to church. They're making me to come to church because you have no faith. I do go to church, but I only like the people there. I actually like listen to the sermons. I'm not moved by the singing. I'm not moved by the words. It's because you don't actually have faith because genuine faith worships him. And it worships him by proclaiming him, right? So not just worship and singing, that's part of it, but it worships him by ultimately proclaiming him, proclaiming him in song. Proclaiming him in prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Proclaiming him in word. We tell the world around us. Proclaiming him in our lives. One hymn we sing says, let our lives, let our lips and our lives express. We live out faith. We want to live for him wherever we are. Faith does that. Because it's loyal to Christ. Because it's totally dependent on him. So because of that, because of this absolute devotion to him, there's nothing else I can do but live for him. Do you have this faith? Well, let me close by saying, if there's any of you this morning who hear me speak about this faith, and you say, I, haven't, I don't have that faith, which means 
I haven't believed the God who was promised, which means you're saying I'm cursed. What, what, what can be done? What do I do? Well, let, let me say this to you. Let me say this to you this morning. Abraham left his homeland where there was pagans, where he was probably a, 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 a pagan and he was worshipping the idols and he left that and, and went to follow after God. But Abraham could only do that because ultimately one day the one who was truly faithful, Jesus Christ, he would leave heaven. He didn't, he didn't leave idols. He didn't leave paganism. He left heaven where he was one with the true God the very son of the true God, he left heaven and came into our idol-riddled world. He came here. You know why he did that? So that he could walk amongst these pagans. So that he could live among these pagans. And so that one day he would faithfully offer heaven's body, as it were, for the sins of the earth. Jesus Christ, the faithful one, became faithful so that the faithless would receive faith. Let me call you this morning, if you haven't known true faith, if you've been pretending Christianity, if you, if you don't know that you believe these promises, lift your eyes to the cross of Jesus, where he, he's died for sinners. And on that cross, everything has been bought. On that cross, there's everything you need. You say, I don't believe in the Lord. Well, look to the cross and ask Jesus Christ to save you from your unbelief. You say, I'm a fornicator. Well, look to him because he died for fornicators. He was pure and perfect, but he died as though he were a fornicator. Look to him. I wish you would look to Jesus this morning and say, Jesus, save me. Save me. And you receive that gift of faith. And you believe the promises of God that because they are the promises of God, never fail. Amen.